Now, over the next two weeks, we're going to be reflecting on 25 years of Bank of England independence, starting with today's episode, looking at that crucial decision back in 1997. Make sure you're subscribed so that you get the second part next week as soon as it's out. Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. Improving the institutional arrangements for economic policy will be accorded a high priority by the government in order to deliver long-term economic stability and rising prosperity. Within its overall responsibility for economic policy, including stability, growth and employment, and for setting the inflation target, the government intends to give the Bank of England operational responsibility for setting interest rates. Now, in those inimitable and, and inspirational words, Gordon Brown wrote... Oh, that's who it was. Yeah, yeah, it was Gordon Brown. Uh, Gordon Brown, the Chancellor of the incoming Blair government, wrote to Eddie George, who was then the Governor of the Bank of England on the 6th of May 1997, to basically inform him that the government had decided to give the Bank of England independence to set interest rates. On that day, Brown had a final meeting with Eddie George increased rates to 6.25% and then revealed there would be no further such meetings. And that was four days after the Blair came in. So it was all a bit of a thunderbolt. And it was probably one of the most memorable announcements that the Blair government made in 1997 and is now 25 years ago today. Absolutely. It certainly was seismic, even though the direction of travel was towards less government interference in setting monetary policy. But I don't think anybody really expected him to do it just like that. Yeah, well, we're very pleased to be joined today to talk about this by Paul Tucker, who was a witness to those events 25 years ago as the head of monetary assessment and strategy. These days, he's a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and also author of Unelected Power, a book about central banking. And he has a book coming out this autumn called Global Discord, which is about geopolitics and money. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much for inviting me to mark this 25th anniversary of a rather big event. Yeah, well, to kick us off, it'd be interesting to get your memories of that time and how the decision came about and whether it was a surprise to people within the Bank of England when Gordon Brown literally, I mean, virtually the first major decision he took as Chancellor was to give up those decisions forevermore. Big picture, the UK was more or less the last major advanced economy to make it central bank independent. There had been a kind of phase of 25 years after the collapse of Bretton Woods in the early 1970s, where the world having ditched gold and being indirectly attached to gold, it all then depended upon national authorities, governments and central banks to steer the economy and maintain low inflation. In the 1970s, that was an abject failure. In the 1980s, it was kind of rather repaired in the US by Paul Volcker. The Bundesbank did an extraordinary job in in Europe during this period. But the UK lagged behind. I have no doubt whatsoever that Mrs Thatcher was completely serious about delivering low inflation, but she could never really bring herself to do it. And I think that was for two reasons. One was that they embarked on a series of, of rules 
a rule about the growth of the monetary aggregates. And they went through a parade of different monetary aggregates. And so they wanted to attach themselves to a rule rather than exercise discretion. But actually, the rule was always broken, broken by the Chancellor of the Exchequer of the day and the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. Inflation remained higher in Britain and more volatile in Britain than in any of its peers. They ran out of domestic measures and entered into the exchange rate mechanism, whenever it was in the early 1990s, as a kind of proxy where you'd attach yourself to the virtuous Bundesbank because you couldn't quite do it yourself. And my, my direct memory of that, I was private secretary to the governor of the Bank of England, Robin Lee Pemberton, during the PRM period, both going in and coming out. He gave a speech, which I wrote, a speech delivered privately. And I think this is kind of remarkable looking back. I mean, he was perceived as being very keen to go into the ERM. He was perceived by his colleagues and by government as very pro-European and very pro-exchange rate mechanism. But in this speech, he says, going into the ERM, of course, is a substitute for Central Bank, for Bank of England independence, which would be a far better solution. But it's not one that the government of Britain is prepared to embrace at the moment. When the UK then crashed out of the ERM, Norman Lamont, I think, has never taken enough credit. He was the chancellor when we left. And he introduced a regime called inflation targeting. And this was a Bank of England proposal to the chancellor. Norman Lamont was quite courageous in basically putting the UK on a different path where much more would be open and transparent about monetary policy making. During the 80s, it had been mumbo jumbo. So that this was what became known subsequently, because Norman Lamont obviously didn't survive his epiphany about uh, monetary policy and was subsequently sacked by the Prime Minister John Major and replaced by Ken Clark. And it became known as the Ken and Eddie show. Yeah. And how independent was the bank then? Well, it was independent in its advice. Hmm. And its advice was made public. That was a very big change. In the past, our advice had always been private. The Bank of England as councillor, and a councillor always has the, the problem in any walk of life, of where do you trim in order to influence your master or mistress? But once your advice is going to be public, you don't do any trimming at all. And so what changed with the system Norman set up and then became the Ken and Eddie show is that our advice would be published, it would sometimes not be taken. And we were pleased about that, because that meant that the politicians, and actually the Bank of England admired Ken Clark as a chancellor, but that would mean the responsibility was absolutely with the elected politicians and not somehow spread over these obscure advisors who had advised something else. And that meant if we were wrong, that would be clear too. But clearly the system that evolved in 1997 involved, in effect, cutting out the elected advisor and saying it's not up to the democratic politician to decide whether to raise or it's a technical decision. No, it did. It did. And it wasn't just a matter of cutting out or suspending, if you like, the elected politicians who get to set the objective in the remit, remember. Mm. It also took out of the process the mandarins. We no longer thought the organisation didn't think of itself as less capable than the Treasury. Whereas the Bank of England I joined in 1980 almost certainly thought of itself as less capable of high policy than the Treasury. By the mid-1990s, that had changed. And what we wanted going into the 1997 election was something where this would be a real discussion between the governor and the chancellor, but also 
our advice would not be just that of the governor, but of a committee, and a committee that included externals. And then what happened is the election came in, and they knew that's what we were going to advise. The election, they won massively. For what it's worth, this matters to nobody other than me. When I saw the size of the majority, I thought, God, I wonder whether they'll go the whole hog. Because if there's ever a moment, now's the moment. You can't see inside other people's minds or souls. I, I, but I do think that Eddie and Mervyn and Howard Davis was deputy governor at the time. I think they were surprised. And they knew much more about the government's thinking than me. So I may have been wrong to be not surprised. The whole thing may have come as a surprise to uh, you in the bank. It came as a bit of a surprise to Gordon Brown, I think, because I don't think he quite realised what he'd done. Because the very next day or two days later, he took away one of the key responsibilities of the bank and gave it to the DMO. The DMO, that's the government's debt management office, which issues government bonds on behalf of the state. That was sort of interpreted by people like me as putting the bank further into its box, having just let it out. Well, it's very interesting you raise this, Neil, because it's the right thing to raise, if I may pompously say so, in that what people normally raise is the loss of supervision. But, of course, the history of the Bank of England from 1694 is essentially that of guilt market management and, and debt issuance. In 1694, creation of the Bank of England basically gave credibility to the government finances. So, you know, over 300 years later, that's taken away. The other personal element to this is if you have a career like Eddie's or even a career a bit like mine. Well, yes, because he came, he came from the market side of the bank. You're very conscious of the jobs that you've done that have somehow elevated you because you've been noticed. And that's a very private thing for you personally, but it's a big thing for you personally. Eddie made his reputation. I mean, he was an absolute superstar as a staffer, but he made his reputation as the UK government's debt manager in the late 1970s. And that was the reputation he had with Mrs. Thatcher. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher was aware of Eddie George's existence well before he was fantastically senior because he had done these incredible things for the country. He basically broke the funding strikes in the late 1970s <laughs> via a technical wheeze. The technical wheeze was completely open and the guilt market kind of... What do you mean by it, funding strike? I... What do you mean by funding strike? There, were, there was more than one, but there was a major buyer's strike. And the statistic that I like churning out is the moment in 1976 where the UK government had to pay 15.5% for 20-year money, which marked the nadir of the market. But I suspect without... Eddie being there, the position would have been a great deal worse and the government might actually have been into it to a point where it couldn't finance its spending. Yes, there were a few periods in the late 1970s where the government could only finance itself at extraordinarily high interest rates, 15% plus. There were other periods where it couldn't really issue anything at all. The thing that had been so key for him was being transferred away. And actually, I could empathise with this because... I had been the government debt manager in the mid-1990s. I introduced auctions. I introduced the repo market and so on and so forth. Of course, with other people, including very importantly, John Cunliffe, now at the Bank of England and who at the time was my opposite member of the Treasury. So losing debt management was an enormous thing. And I talked to Eddie about it. And he said, well, it's a you know, slightly sad day for people like you and me, but actually the great prize is monetary independence. And that's what matters for this country. And we've got the guilt market structure into a good place. Years later, he said to me, not a few years later, he said to me, 
I was in his room talking about something or other monetary policy or something. And he said, by the way, when you were running the guilt stuff, how many staff did I let you have? And I said, oh, I don't know, about 15 or 20. He said, that's what I thought. He said, I could do a few of them that. Uh, dig, dig. He said, I've heard that the DMO has got 100. Can you think of what they do? <laughs> it's, a, it's another example of the productivity problems in this country. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure that number is right. It's probably an well, underestimate they're now. quite a lot of debt these days. So this was a sad moment. And of course, actually, when QE happened, QE is the remerger of monetary operations and debt management. Yes. The, uh, the DMO actually, in my view, was never particularly good at it because they did not have the depth of experience and market nous that the bank had. And the bank had been through one of the most torrid periods of issue of government debt ever, I guess, for the bank. And the DMO didn't have that. And I think it's shown ever since. Can we actually just touch there on, on the question of, Neil talked about the DMO, obviously banking supervision subsequently became quite an issue. There were big institutional changes, not just the transfer away of guilt sales, but also the supervision of financial institutions. And and really, some people would say that the Bank of England emerged from 1997 and the Brown reforms as a sort of monetary institute, as opposed to a sort of central bank. How was it seen inside the bank, the chop up and the creation of the FSA? The first thing to say about that is that this is reasonably well known. The person who actually knows this best, who's still alive, is Andrew Bailey. Eddie was kind of promised a debate on the pros and cons of supervision being in the bank. And he wasn't especially wedded to it, but he did want there to be a proper debate about how best to construct this. And that debate never happened, and supervision was transferred. I think many people in the bank, perhaps most, thought this would work well. My own view, and that of Alistair Clark, I was the Deputy Director for Financial Stability in the late 1990s, early zeros. Alistair, God rest his soul, was the director. And we spent many days talking about this. And I think our joint view was this will look as though it will work during peacetime and it will not work in a crisis. And it won't work in a crisis. <laughs> You're right about that. We'll come on. To that. Our view was that in a crisis, the lender of last resort is central and the lender of last resort won't be able to do a good job of being the lender of last resort, won't have the authority with the regulator, the supervisors, with the Treasury, if it hasn't had access to banks and the details of banks and the soundness of banks in the years running up to the crisis. You can't suddenly create out of nowhere a cadre of people that are capable of doing that stuff. One of the, one of the fascinating things in 2007, Mervyn, who was then by then governor, was marvelous about this, actually, was that at the first phase of the crisis, we brought some people back out of retirement. In the first phase of 2007 crisis, nearly all the useful people were above 50 because they had been in the Bank of England when it was the supervisor. And the key punchline here, in a really big crisis, all the top people lose confidence in the supervisors. The supervisors are perceived to have screwed up to a greater or lesser extent. It doesn't matter whether that's accurate. But what I remember we did, there was quite a lot of comment about this at the time, that the Bank of England couldn't be expected to know what was going on in the marketplace if it didn't have access to the participants in that marketplace, which is effectively what the position was. And a lot of us thought that was rather foolish. In some respects, that turned out to be true and not true. One day, some researcher will do 
an exercise on what the Bank of England published in the early zeros on all of these fancy credit markets, collateralized debt obligations, credit derivatives and all of that. And the Bank of England, I really believe, published incredible stuff on all of that. What it couldn't do was describe the world and then say, and then add a should to it. And therefore, the regulator should do the following. You will know, um, but not all of your listeners will know, is that there was quite a debate about within the Bank of England, often silent, but there about, well, should we embrace being a monetary institute? And to some extent, this is perceived as a kind of Eddie George gang of people versus a Mervyn King gang of people. I actually think that's pretty misleading for two reasons. I'm not going to name this person. When I was the markets director, I actually went to see one of the then deputy governments. And I said, you know, this isn't going to work. And it's a problem. And um, we can downgrade the financial stability stuff too much. And the response to me was effectively quite telly, actually, and quite useful for me in terms of growing up. It was, grow up, Paul. This is what the Treasury wants. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. not the Bank of England pre-1997. It's the Bank of England's responsibility is monetary policy and price stability. You know, even though I'd been the governor's private secretary during turbulent times, which kind of helps you grow up a bit about the ways of the world. I mean, I will never forget that conversation because I think it was accurate. I think when people say oh, Mervyn was leading the bank to be a monetary institute, I think Mervyn was sensitive to, well, two things really. First of all, I think he was sensitive to what the elected power wanted. And secondly, it was that holding yourself out as responsible for financial stability, the stability of the banking system, when you actually have no powers, mm. is a terrible state of affairs. Yeah, yeah but that... One way of caricaturing <laughs> the debate between Mervyn and I during that period was that his approach was, we haven't got any powers and we shouldn't make hold out ourselves as having responsibilities we haven't got. My approach was, um, this isn't going to go well. We need to kind of make an argument in slow motion that the central bank does need some financial stability powers. After the crisis, this came together where Mervyn was fantastically supportive and we worked incredibly closely together at getting these powers or some version of them back into the bank. So, but, so the Monetary Institute thing, in a sense, was bolted in to the logic of what the Treasury were trying to do in 1997. And this was partly about... If they're, the, if they're responsible for monetary policy and debt management and financial supervision, my God, you know, they'll be appallingly powerful. They may almost be as powerful as the Treasury, and that would be, a, that would be Unacceptable. terrible. But can we wind back a second from 2007, go back to the institutional changes which took place with independence, bringing in the Monetary Policy Committee, and how much of an innovation was it bringing in external members? And to what extent, you know, were you able to really create this sort of non-groupthink based sort of, because presumably that was the idea, was bringing in outsiders where, so it wasn't just a bunch of bank people who all shared the same prejudices. Yes, I think that's right. I think the motive was fresh air and so on. And I think that was a good thing. I think the perception that there was groupthink before 1997 was a bit convenient to people and that a building that contained Eddie George and Mervyn King wasn't lacking debate between the two of them. And when the MPC was set up in the, in the early months, Mervyn was quite quickly voting for a different level of rates from Eddie. But there is no doubt that bringing in the externals was terrific. And the first group of externals was brilliantly chosen for the kind of balance of background, skills, and, and frankly, personality types. And one of the effects was to kind of improve the performance of the internals. 
So one of the new externals was, was Willem Boiter, a very distinguished professor who'd been at Yale and so on. Mervyn was by far the best theoretician on, on the bank staff during that period. And debates between Eddie and Mervyn, Mervyn tend tried to pull Eddie towards theory where Mervyn was on sounder ground and Eddie would try and pull Mervyn towards judgments on the economy where I mean, Mervyn was good at that, but Eddie was even better. And then one day Mervyn was talking in one of these meetings about a theory thing. These words won't mean much to some of your listeners, but they will to some. And Willem said to Mervyn in the formal meeting, well, not with log utility, which is my benchmark. And I wrote on a piece of paper silently to my <laughs> <Me> colleague. <laughs> of course. Log utility, oh. whatever it is, is, is normally the, the benchmark model. And I wrote in capital letters silently to the person sitting next to me, the world just changed. Because it meant that there was somebody in the room who was good on the theory as Mervyn. The response of Mervyn was just to up his game. It was like watching tennis I mean, He plays. became even fantastic. more un- incomprehensible. No, <laughs> quite. <laughs> now, the talk in the bank, I'm sure, is always of little else. <laughs> but look, this was an important moment, and it was an anti-group thing, thing in that there was now no pecking order in terms of academic credentials. What happened after 2000 or 1997 was inflation became very quiescent, in a sense, you'd imagine that the committee started to think, we've got the hang of this. We've got credibility. We know what we're doing. We don't have to worry too much. How did people respond to the change in the monetary environment in the 2000s? Do you mean before 2008 or after? Yeah, before, obviously before. before. So we're talking about the conditions of the 80s and where you had high positive real interest rates were a thing of the past. The 90s, which had seen declines, inflation remained low, it remained relatively stable. There were periods where people said, oh, well, you know, this 2% target is too high, you know, you're undershooting it, and and letters had to be written and so forth. Do you think that ever people sort of thought, this is much easier than we thought it was going to be? The headline answer to your question was absolutely not. (laughs) And if anything has gone wrong in, say, the United States, and perhaps elsewhere over the last two years, that view may have crept in. But the first point to make, though, is immediately after the announcement of independence, long-term gilt yields, forward rates, as economists call them, fell 50 basis points. It's a lot. A lot. Quite. That's half a percent. And of that, economists were later able to estimate, of that, about half of that, about a quarter percent, was lower expected inflation, because inflation would be closer to, I think the target may initially have been two and a half on the the old measure. But the other part of it was, so about a quarter of a percent, 25 basis points, as technicians would call it, was a fall in um, the risk premium charged by the markets. Essentially, a risk premium charged for uncertainty about inflation, that uncertainty may be volatile and may get out of control. So this number is gigantic. In a period in which the long-run real interest rates were about 2.5%. This was by reducing the real cost of government debt by 10%. This is just enormous, just enormous. And I think it's an important part of understanding monetary independence, which is sometimes perceived as some kind of right-wing conservative small-c ramp, in that the savings on this, they can be spent by right-wing-ish governments on tax cuts, but they can be 
used by more left-wing social democratic governments on more welfare, and that's for democracy. And so the benefits of having a central bank that is credible are enormous and flow through to real people. And if ever it's either taken away or being perceived to be taken away, then governments will pay a higher cost of borrowing, and that will hurt people, whichever party is in power. And what I'm saying applies in the United States, Euro area, the UK, any, any, any advanced economy. And then the second part of your question is, since inflation turned out to be quite low and not very volatile, did we start to take that for granted? Did we think that's actually kind of easier than it looks? And as I said, not in my time, Charles Goodhart, who was one of the early external members, he only served three years, regrettably. Um, he gave a speech early on saying it's, that there's a danger here, that it looks easier than it is, and it's not easy. People mustn't inhale. <laughs> yeah, and, absolutely right. We didn't need to be reminded of that because we had, had lived through the 1970s. I'd been a teenager in the 1970s, but I'd worked in the bank during the 1980s. I'd seen monetary policy go wrong time and time again and get derailed. And the UK, the monetary regime in the UK, just lurch around in ways that hurt regular people, uh, which is what we're seeing now in the United States. I have to say, I think that's a really important point, which I don't think many people have ever grasped, that the rate of long-term debt costs to government is one of the key indicators of how much wealth we have available. It's still viewed then and now as some sort of obscure technical measure, which doesn't really affect me. Okay, so we'll be back with Paul next week to continue the discussion and look at the future for central bank independence. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week.